Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 34, The Dias Cast. Last time, we covered the interval between Hamilcar's death in 228 BC until Hannibal's ascension to power in 221 BC. By the time Hannibal took command, his brother-in-law, Hasdrubal, had consolidated much of Carthage's gains from the Barcid conquests and established a magnificent capital for Carthage's now richest province. Upon Hasdrubal's assassination in 221 BC, the army once again bypassed the Carthaginian Senate and elected the 25-year-old Hannibal Barca to take the helm of Barcid Spain. Hannibal, whose name means the grace of Baal, was Hamilcar's eldest son and the spitting image of his father. The Roman historian Livy gives a stirring description of the young commander who would become Carthage's greatest military man. The troops received him with unanimous enthusiasm, the old soldiers feeling that in the person of this young man, Hamilcar himself was restored to them. In the features and expression of the son's face, they saw the father once again, the same vigor in his look, the same fire in his eyes. Reckless in courting danger, he showed superb tactical ability once it was upon him. Indefatigable, both physically and mentally, he could endure with equal ease excessive heat or excessive cold. He ate and drank not to flatter his appetites, but only so much as would sustain his bodily strength. His time for waking, like his time for sleeping, was never determined by daylight or darkness. When his work was done, then and then only he rested, without need, moreover, of silence or a soft bed to woo sleep to his eyes. Often he was seen lying in his cloak on the bare ground among the common soldiers on sentry or picket duty. His accoutrements, like the horses he rode, were always conspicuous, but not his clothes, which were like those of any other officer of his rank and standing. Mounted or unmounted, he was unequaled as a fighting man, always the first to attack and the last to leave the field. To his natural gifts evident in Livy's grudging admiration, we can add that Hannibal's education had included, according to Cassius Dio, all that the Greeks could teach. Hamilcar had been careful to obtain Greek tutors for his sons, as evidenced by the fact that Hannibal's Greek teacher, Sosilus, accompanied him on his march into Italy as his biographer. Hannibal's mastery of Greek theories on tactics and strategy coupled with his innate talents and the practical experience in warfare he obtained from his father, left him well-equipped to meet the life of challenge which lay before him. With Barcid popularity at an all-time high among the masses of Carthage, the Carthaginian Senate quickly approved the soldiers' vote, confirming the Barcid hegemony over Spain, which Hanno the Great had spoken against for so long. However, Hannibal did not rest on his paternal laurels. Whatever his natural advantages, he still had very much to prove himself. Raised in a military camp alongside his brothers, and having held no political or magisterial office in Carthage itself, remember he had left the capital with his father when he was nine years old, he owed his appointment over the Carthaginian army to who his father was, rather than his own merits. Likewise, although he had ties to the Spanish via his wife, a powerful princess from Castulo, Hannibal knew that the fierce Iberians 
would only follow a leader who had proven himself in war. In 221 BC, Hannibal marshaled his army and marched into the lands of the Ocades, who likely dwelt on the La Mancha plain of central Spain. In a thundering onslaught, Hannibal captured their chief town, Cartilla, as well as several lesser cities which provided much-needed plunder for his troops. The following year, after wintering in New Carthage, Hannibal launched an invasion of the nearby Vacii, sacking the two cities of Helmetis and Arbucala, modern-day Salamanca and Toro, respectively. These victories against the Alcades and Vacii displaced large numbers of Spanish refugees who fled to the neighboring Carpatani with their grievances. After listening to the fugitives' plight, the Carpatani, probably wary of the renewed danger of Punic expansionism under the enterprising young general, agreed to intervene against the Carthaginians. Thus it was that when Hannibal marched southwards once again to winter in New Carthage, he found his trail dogged by a large Spanish host, Polybius numbers it at a 100,000 men, which confronted him at the River Tagus near modern-day Toledo. This would be the first major challenge to his generalship in the field, and he needed all his skill and cunning if he was to extricate his army from being driven into the swollen river. Encumbered by baggage and spoil from his recent victories, Hannibal declined to cross the difficult ford which blocked his road to New Carthage during daylight, contenting himself with beating off several Spanish attacks and fortifying his side of the river. When the Spaniards drew off at dusk, confident that the Carthaginians would not dare to make a dangerous crossing at night, Hannibal sent out scouts who discovered a more practicable crossing a few miles from his position. Leaving a rear guard to keep the campfires burning as a ruse, Hannibal skillfully brought the bulk of his army, including his elephants, across this other ford under cover of darkness. Not content with merely escaping the Spanish trap, Hannibal then doubled back along the banks of the Tagus until he reached the shore directly opposite of where he had started. Next morning, when the Spaniards discovered to their surprise that the enemy had given them the slip, they rushed across the river in a disordered body, believing that the Carthaginians had withdrawn due to fear. While they were still struggling against the rushing current, Hannibal unleashed his cavalry upon them. The mounted horsemen, seated high above the churning water, held a decisive advantage over the Spanish infantry floundering in the river, and many Spaniards were run down or lost their footing in the unequal struggle. Swept away by the current, these hapless warriors soon found themselves harried by Hannibal's elephants and missile troops, which lined the banks and finished off any Spaniard which the current brought to shore. Meanwhile, those within the river could not retreat, for their comrades pressed on behind them in their eagerness to come to grips with the Carthaginians, knocking more men into the churning river. Sensing victory, Hannibal suddenly withdrew his cavalry and released his heavy infantry, which, advancing in a tightly packed column, waded across the ford, driving the routing Spaniards before them. The merciless slaughter which followed sent a stern warning throughout the remainder of the Iberian Peninsula that the new Punic commander was not a man to be crossed lightly. In this, his first major battle, Hannibal gives us a glimpse of his brilliance as a tactician, as well as a thorough understanding of how to coordinate favorable terrain, mobile cavalry, 
and a veteran infantry reserve to his advantage. These skills, foreshadowed at the River Tagus, would remain hallmarks of his generalship for years to come. Hannibal's rapid campaigns, which culminated in his victory at the Battle of the River Tagus, successfully cowed or subdued nearly all of the tribes southeast of the River Ebro. Only the town of Saguntum, a coastal city situated amid rich, fertile lands, doggedly opposed Punic expansion and clung to the Romans as its protector. Several years before Hannibal came to power, Polybius is unclear regarding the exact date, the Saguntines had voluntarily placed themselves under Roman patronage, although it is unclear what the precise nature of this relationship was. Nonetheless, Saguntum regularly sent increasingly shrill messages to Rome regarding the Barcid buildup in Spain, which likely precipitated the earlier embassies to Hamilcar and then Hasdrubal. Now, the Romans dispatched another set of envoys, this time to the young Hannibal, who returned triumphant to New Carthage in the winter of 220 BC. When the two Roman senators who served as ambassadors arrived, they immediately struck a high-handed tone with Hannibal, warning him to leave Saguntum alone and to adhere to Hasdrubal's promise not to cross the Ebro in arms. If the Romans had thought to browbeat an inexperienced Hannibal into submission, they badly misjudged their man. The Carthaginian general angrily reminded the Romans that Saguntum was within the Punic sphere of influence below the Ebro, and that Rome, not Carthage, had overstepped its bounds in interfering there. Within the recent past, the Saguntines had invited the Romans to serve as arbiters in a dispute between the pro-Roman and pro-Carthaginian factions in the city. Unsurprisingly, the Romans sided with those who favored them, executing several of the pro-Carthaginian party in the process. If this wasn't enough, Carthage's local Iberian allies complained of being harassed by raids from Saguntum. In light of these affronts, Hannibal stated that he intended to deal with these matters himself come spring. The envoys and the Roman Senate which sent them likely envisioned that the Carthaginians who within living memory had been so near destruction at the hands of their own mercenaries and then strong-armed out of Sardinia and Corsica, would once again back down at Rome's imperious demands. However, the Carthage that the Barcids had built was no longer the fragile state bled white by Roman indemnities and vicious internal tumult. Rich in silver, secured by powerful new cities like New Carthage, and bolstered by an experienced army honed by nearly 16 years of constant campaigning, Hannibal calculated that he could call Rome's bluff, or should they be in earnest, he and Carthage could win the war which followed. We can never be certain of Hannibal's motivations at this point. Was he attempting to provoke a full-scale conflict with Rome, or was he merely responding to what he perceived as new Roman threats of aggression? The rape of Sardinia remained within recent history, and Hannibal, naturally bold and resolute, was likely the more disinclined to acquiesce to any new Roman demands. Yet war was not the inevitable alternative. Perhaps by showing Carthage's teeth, Hannibal could have reasoned that he was restoring the status quo between the two major powers, without necessitating bloodshed. If this is the case, he too was mistaken. Troubled by Hannibal's rebuff, 
the envoys departed for the Carthaginian Senate, which, when they arrived, gave an indifferent response to their protests. Meanwhile, when the spring thaw came, Hannibal marched on Saguntum. His army was by now very much a family affair. Forged by his father and solidified by his brother-in-law, it included his brothers, Hasdrubal the Younger and Mago, who would loom large in the coming war with Rome. Alongside them came his adult nephew, Hanno, and his close friends, his cavalry commander, Marhabal, Mago the Samnite, and a tough warrior named Hannibal Monomachus, meaning gladiator. Surrounded by his warlike family and companions, Hannibal had little doubt that Saguntum would soon be brought to heel. The siege which followed, however, was anything but easy. Over the next eight months, the Saguntines mounted a desperate resistance, forcing the Carthaginian troops to pay for every foot in blood. Assaults were thrown back, siege engines destroyed, and Hannibal himself suffered a severe wound in the thigh from a javelin. One particularly hellish missile, three feet of steel the end of which was smeared in pitch, caused constant consternation among the defenders, for when it fell among them, it burned so savagely that soldiers luckily enough to avoid being struck directly had to discard their shields due to the heat, exposing themselves to further missiles. Even when the Carthaginians finally pierced the outer wall, they found to their dismay the industrious Saguntines had constructed another redoubt of dirt and rubble. Nonetheless, the Carthaginians relentlessly pushed onwards. Livy gives a gripping depiction of the fighting. The din of battle seemed to be everywhere at once, so that the defenders hardly knew where first or best to concentrate their defense. Hannibal in person was urging his men to fresh efforts at a point where they were bringing into action a siege tower higher than any sections of the fortifications of the town. This machine was dragged up, and by means of the catapults and stone throwers upon it, the walls were cleared of defenders, and Hannibal seized the opportunity of sending a party of 500 African troops armed with picks to undermine the wall. It was not a difficult task, as the wall was of old-fashioned construction, the stones not being cemented but set in clay and for this reasons portions of it fell for some distance on both sides of the actual point of impact, so that columns of men were enabled to enter the town over the fallen rubble. The attackers occupied an elevated point within the walls, and brought their artillery into position. Then they built defenses round the point they had seized, thus giving themselves a sort of fort or stronghold in the heart of the town from which to threaten the inhabitants. With their defenses collapsing and their Roman allies nowhere in sight, the Saguntines asked for terms of surrender. Hannibal replied that they could leave the city with nothing but the clothes on their backs and must abandon all their gold and silver behind them. Rather than submit to this indignity, the proud Saguntines kindled a fire in the main square of the town and after casting all their valuables into it, threw themselves into the blaze. Alerted to this mass suicide, Hannibal launched a final assault on the city, ordering that no male of military age should be left alive as punishment for Saguntum's long resistance. Despite the Saguntines' efforts to destroy their property, a large amount of booty still fell into Carthaginian hands. 
after distributing lavish sums to the troops and sending a portion back to Carthage to implicate the Carthaginian Senate in his deed. Hannibal set aside the rest as a war chest should Rome seek vengeance. Where had the Romans been during this time? When the envoys returned to Rome with news of Hannibal's defiance, the Senate immediately broke out into a fierce debate over how to respond. Warhawks, never hard to find among Rome's belligerent aristocrats, argued that the Romans must intervene to curb this overt act of Carthaginian aggression on a Roman ally. A more moderate body contended that Saguntum was a recent and possibly a one-sided ally, quote-unquote, which had unilaterally placed themselves under Roman protection. Additionally, Hannibal's intentions were unclear. Possibly he did mean merely to humble the aggressive Saguntines, as opposed to inciting a direct war with Rome. With a large number of Rome's legions away warring in Illyria, it would require months to transport the men and materials necessary to challenge Hannibal's army. With the Senate deadlocked, time slowly slipped away as Saguntum's defenses grew weaker and weaker. Hannibal himself, delayed by the city's unexpectedly stout resistance, likely thanked his good fortune that no Roman expeditionary force appeared on the horizon. If it had, his position would have become extremely precarious with an army in the field and a hostile city to his rear. Withdrawing would have been a possibly fatal blow to his burgeoning prestige, while to remain would threaten catastrophic defeat. Instead of this hard choice, Rome's vacillation allowed him the time he needed to subdue the haughty Saguntines. Later historians such as Polybius and Livy would seek to gloss over Rome's inaction during this period by ingenious excuses and even by fudging the dates. Nevertheless, Rome never sent a single soldier to aid Saguntum during the siege. Instead, she sent an embassy of protest to Hannibal, who curtly dismissed them, saying that he was too busy with the siege. Once they learned of the destruction of Saguntum, the Romans sent another delegation, this time to Carthage. Upon arrival, the men were ushered into a Carthaginian senate packed full of spectators. Fabius Maximus, who Livy places as the leader of the delegation, stood up and asked whether the Carthaginian state approved of Hannibal's actions. If it did not, he demanded that the Carthaginians surrender Hannibal as a criminal to Roman justice. A skilled Carthaginian orator, whose name is unrecorded, then rose up and in lawyer-like fashion argued the case. He stated that the Romans had no legal basis to complain of the Carthaginians. The treaty with Hasdrubal was invalid since it had never been ratified by the Carthaginian Senate, and Saguntum had not been a Roman ally when the alleged treaty had been signed anyway. Besides, even if such an agreement existed, the Romans, not the Carthaginians, had begun their treaty-breaking by opportunistically seizing Sardinia and Corsica. The Romans, however, were in no mood to debate. When the orator ceased, Fabius folded up his toga and, pointing to it, declared simply, Here we bring you peace and war. Take what you will. Angered by the Romans' arrogance, the Carthaginian Senate bellowed in response, Whichever you please, we do not care. Letting the folds fall to the floor, Fabius replied, We give you war. Thus began one of the greatest conflicts the ancient world would ever see. 
on the pretext of lonely Saguntum, both Rome and Carthage determined to enter the ring once more in a mortal struggle for dominance. Few could predict at the time that this titanic war would determine the fate of the Mediterranean world. Next time, we will cover Hannibal's departure from Spain to bring the war to Rome's heartland. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>